Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo podcast. Episode 2, The Kingdom of the Congo. We left the Congo last time at the end of the 14th century, where we were introduced to the Congo Empire for which we have the earliest written records, the Kingdom of the Congo. The kingdom originates in the late 14th century, and on today's maps would encompass southern Gabon, northern Angola, and the western provinces of DRC, including the Basque Congo, Equateur, Bandunda, and Kasai Occidental. It was estimated to have a population of around 300,000 at this time, representing a sizeable civilization. On a map, it looks broadly diamond-shaped, lying on its side, with a narrow protrusion stretching westwards towards the Atlantic Ocean. It then spread west to cover the savannah and the forest at the heart of the kingdom. This was never a people who thought to base their great cities on the coast. They lived in the savannah, and their main communication outside of their kingdom was the huge river basin. The empire consisted of six provinces ruled by a monarch called the Manikongo of the Bakongo. In reality, it was more of a commonwealth of six provinces, with a much looser arrangement based on agreements, marriages and cooperation, rather than military conquest. Later histories by Jean Covillier of the 16th and 17th centuries documented that the kingdom originated when Lucini Luanimi, or Nima Alukini, conquered the kingdom of the Amweni Kabunga or Amweni Mpalanga. This lay upon a mountain to his south, and he travelled here after crossing the river Nzadi from his father's kingdom on the north bank, the historical kingdom of Ungu. We can estimate that this river Nzadi is the river Congo. According to legend, the kingdom of the Congo was captured from large-headed dwarfs, which may be an embellishment to a history written some 200 years later. It could represent a convenient link to earlier history by way of a distorted link to the Pygmies who inhabited the region in much earlier times, although their major settlements would likely have moved on much earlier than the original Bantu migration. Later academic sources indicated that Lucina Luanimi was just the first person to give himself the title of king. He was the child of Nima Atanzima and Lukeni Lunsuizi, the daughter of the Mbata tribe chief which allied the tribe to the Mpembakasi peoples. He was thought to have been born around 1367, and he founded the kingdom around 1390. The kingdom's capital was Mbanza Congo, which I have seen roughly translated as the court of the hunter, Mbanza meaning court, and Congo being hunter. It was situated about 450 kilometres inland, and the first drawings of the city show orderly encampments of huts distributed around a central open square. Around this square were larger, presumably municipal buildings, with the king's quarters directly adjacent to this. Surrounding these buildings there is much activity with crop cultivation and the smoke of industry, probably from metal smelting works. The town outskirts depicted hunters bringing back catch from successful forays. At the end of the 15th century, it was estimated to have a population of between 30,000 and 60,000. We'll come back to the Portuguese in the next episode. But for now, they provide the best descriptions of the city, as it was when it was the capital of the pre-colonial kingdom. The first Portuguese ambassador arrived in Mbanza Congo in 1491, and according to the aforementioned French historian Covellier, he documented that the city was spread over a wide area. He does provide an interesting description, 
which is represented as an account written first-hand on sighting the capital. The streets were not aligned, nor were the houses in the ancient Congo Kingdom. No avenues lined with palms nor ornamental trees. Narrow paths are running in all directions through the tall grass. The living quarters of the most important people were located close to the king's quarters. Spread out, according to their taste or their fancy, they occupied sometimes quite a considerable space. The houses were made of straw without any ornaments, except inside, where there would be a palm cloth hanging on the wall, representing an antelope or another animal. The houses of the important people could be distinguished from those of the simple ones, because they were larger and had more painted palm cloths. The houses were surrounded by a fence made from very strong trees, with juicy fruits like prunes, African poplars and cactus, with a sap which could poison spearheads and war knives. Toward the north, the mountain was crowned with dark woods, a sacred place where the noise of the hatchet was never heard. Palms, boababs and many trees stood there, and this was where the ancient kings were buried. The founder of the kingdom was buried there. To the south, there was a large courtyard. This was called Umbazi Umbazi Nkanu, the Court of Justice. Because there, under a huge wild fig tree, which shaded a corner of the place, the kings used to administer justice. It was a large open space where crowds would gather to receive the king's blessing, to watch dances and triumphal parades. Not far from this public place was the king's residence or enclosure, which was called Lumbu by the natives. The enclosure was more than 1,000 metres in circumference and was made of pails tied together with liana vines. At the gates, the royal guards were standing with hornblowers. Inside the fence, there was a courtyard, then one could see another fence, in the middle of which was the king's house. One could only reach it through a labyrinth. The only difference between this and the other houses was that one was more spacious. Inside the royal enclosure, the queen had her residence, surrounded by huts in which her followers would live, who would accompany her whenever she left the enclosure. These notes provide us the best description of the settlement before the Portuguese arrived. The kingdom operated on a 30-day lunar month with a four-day week, of which the first day of each week was a holiday. The universal currency was egg-shaped cowrie shells, money known locally as Nzimbu, which was collected from an island near Luanda, now the capital of Angola. 100 Nzimbu could purchase a hen, 300 a garden hoe, and 2,000 a goat. Slaves, which were part of the Congo's economy, were also bought in Nzimbu. A female slave could be purchased or sold for 20,000 Nzimbu, and a male slave for 30,000. These Nzimbu were fished from the island waters and kept as a royal monopoly. The first king, or Mani Congo, collected taxes in the form of these shells, and would carry a zebra tail as a sign of his authority. Around his waist he would wear a belt with the heads of baby animals and a small animal skin cap. He dispensed justice with the help of his elaborate system of judges, and no one was allowed to watch him eat or drink on pain of death. Prior to taking a sip of water, his aide would clang two iron poles together so that subjects in the vicinity were forewarned to look away and to get on all fours. Presumably, there was a second clang when the king had finished his drink. The belief system separated the realm of the living from the ancestors. 
Life was seen as a journey from one realm to the other, and ancestor worship was commonplace with those having success in life being seen to have powerful connections with the spirits. And Banza Congo is still there. You can visit it today. It lies in Angola as the capital of the northern Angolan Zaire province. Other drawings show the city as being located on high river cliffs, with descriptions of these being 550 metres high, but this looks to be a touch of artistic embellishment, as these cliffs are no longer there, although the city does still sit on a river. There are a few historical remnants of 16th and 17th century churches, which are the earliest churches in sub-Saharan Africa, but evidence of the earlier pre-Portuguese-influenced town are now undiscernible in the surroundings of the modern African provincial capital. It was clear then that the Kingdom of the Congo was a complex society, with a power hierarchy, a legal system, religion, trade and currency. How this kingdom would have continued to develop, however, is now lost to us, and this was the last phase of the solely African-influenced kingdom, as the wider world was coming, for better or for worse. Revealing the complexities of today's country, law to this kingdom is not confined to history. In 2007, 134 people, rioters and police alike, died in Bas-Congo riots following the Bundadir-Congo movement, which dreamed of restoring the kingdom to its former power. Even today, the kingdom of the Congo attracts a loyalty from people who would have lived within its borders, stretching far outside of today's DRC state borders to the inhabitants of Cameroon and Angola. At the end of the 1400s, however, 2,000 miles away, another ambitious king, driven by his own ambitions of wealth and power and fuelled by religious conviction, was watching the blessings of his latest fleet to leave Belém in Lisbon for their exploration of the lands south of Europe. The Portuguese were coming and with them came a relationship that would set a precedent for the Kingdom and the Congo with the rest of the world to this day. The Kingdom of the Congo would soon face new challenges, but this we shall leave for next time. So see you then, and safe travels.